0: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. My episode today is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how partnering with Booking Protect can provide you with an opportunity to offer your customers a better buying experience, more peace of mind for their purchases, and It can create a new stream of revenue for you and your organization. Visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com. While I'm on the subject of Booking Protect and critical paths and refund protection and offering your customers more um, to get them to buy more, um, I'm doing a webinar. It's going to be about 10 keys to selling more tickets in the second half of 2019. It will be on January. January or sorry, June 24th, 2019 at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, much like the last one I did on uh, selling premium seats, I'm going to record it and probably post it on the podcast. But if, you ha- if you're if you going to sign up for it, you'll have a chance to ask some questions. Uh, get your questions heard in real time. Um, It's going to be put together in partnership with Booking Protect. We're going to do some great and really cool things, but it'll be 10 ideas that you can take and go ahead and help you sell more tickets in the second half of 2019. There'll be a landing page that I'm going to send out over the next couple days where you can sign up just directly there. But until then, you can get it before anyone else by sending me an email and putting Business of Fun webinar in the subject line, To my email address, it's dave at davewakeman.com, and I will get you signed up. I will confirm you. I'll add you to the list. We'll get you going. It's going to be great. It's 10 ways that you can sell more tickets in the second half of of 2019. It's going to be focused on a lot of actions, tactics, strategies, um, really, really uh, proactive, useful ideas that will help you generate more revenue in the second half of the year. My guest today is Patrick Ryan from EventElect. Uh, Many of you probably know him, probably have seen him on Twitter, have probably uh, followed along with some of his stories, Uh, his ideas his examples. Um, Patrick, uh, we went, uh, we have been meaning to do this podcast for a long time and I hope it didn't disappoint anybody. Um, We got through a whole lot of stuff. This is one of the longer episodes of the Business of Fund and I think it's going to be great. Um, We covered a lot of stuff. My my God, we start out with talking about what of intellect is, where it started, how it became what it is today. We talk about trends in the industry and best practices. We talked about managing a business. We talked about a business culture. Um, One really great part of the whole conversation was where um, Patrick talks about the five pillars of pricing. And he talks about how a lot of the automation and the technology today focuses on three parts of it. And then there's two aspects of selling and pricing that we don't often think about. We figure that we can digitize and um, use an algorithm and all these things for everything. And he lays out some really clear examples that make that make me make make you a little bit more uncomfortable with that Uh, we talk about incentives we talk about the value creation we talk about brokers we talk about the need to continue to grow your value Um, we talk about you know how managing your owner if you're on the sports team side and you're an executive is a big challenge and a big opportunity at the same time Uh, considering the last episode was with tony knopp and tony talked about um, some of the things that he had he was uncomfortable with in the way that sports business sales is done and set up. It was interesting to hear um, Patrick Ryan take almost the exact opposite view of the argument of the of the conversation. So we talked about how Patrick thinks that having so many inside sales folks uh, helps actually speed up the sales process when things get better for a team. And he uses the example of the 76ers. I also raised the question of what do you, how do you do it to avoid um burning out a market you know or and Patrick had a really good idea which is that like if you maybe burn out your market and you're always reading out some of these people or a lot of these people might not have ever been customers to begin with when we talked about uh, cold emailing and prospecting and Ooh, sweets and what makes a good secondary inventory product and just, my lord, a lot. Um, So I really, really think you're going to enjoy this one, and I hope you do. But give this one just a few minutes to kick in because um, if I sound a little off or a little distracted or if it takes a little bit of time to get into the first part of the conversation, it is for a very good reason, which was that my son, uh, he's nine uh, had strep throat this, this morning as I was recording the podcast. And as soon as I started to record the thing, all hell broke loose. Um, the doctor came, my kids screaming and yelling. Uh, there was all kinds of stuff going on around me. And I was trying to keep the conversation going as I was dealing with all of this. And so um, while I was getting that settled in, that may, may have made this seem a little off at the very beginning, but give it about. 10 minutes or so 12 minutes um and then it starts to pick up exactly like a normal conversation would go so i want to apologize for that and let you know that there was no, you know nothing really wrong it's just my kid had strep throat and i had to deal with it um so if it does seem a little bit awkward at first that is the reason why um but without further i want we'll to do. welcome patrick my conversation from Pat intellect Ryan to the business, on fun the business podcast, podcast patrick what's up man
1: hey how's it going dave thanks uh Thanks for having me on. Uh, Really enjoyed your podcast. Uh, particularly over the last couple of months, uh, some really insightful stuff that, that we're already applying to, to our business and, and sales process.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. And you know, you, know, you know how to get in touch with me, right, in case you guys never need a consultant. Uh, everybody needs that. Um, <laughs> but thank you because I, I really have focused on improving the podcast even more uh, in the second year. So I'm glad that you can be here very early in the second year because we're going to have a really good conversation, I think. Um, and I, I want to start out by asking you, like about of intellect, right? Because I know that from following you for several years and talking to you over time, um, that the, the company has kind of taken on many iterations and many different forms over the years. Can you give us a little background on what you're up to, what you've done and what you're up to and kind of how it's taken the form of what it is today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think the, the origins of the company go back to the friendship between me and my co-founder, Ignacio Cab- Cabero. Um We, Uh, started off as autograph collectors and we were actively collecting and trading autographs. But when we both got to college, you know, we realized that, you know, the the funds for our, you know, respective, you know, college, you know, debts and lifestyles, you know, selling autographs became really attractive. And so, you know, StubHub's owned by eBay. And so we've been doing business with an eBay owned company for, you know, 20 plus years now uh from when we were selling autographs on ebay and you know we were always kind of very entrepreneurial at heart and he got into ticketing uh by accident in college um he bought four tickets to a dallas mavericks playoff game uh he was at uh, a and m so he and i are are bitter rivals he's an aggie and i'm a longhorn but uh two of his buddies bailed and so he sold the two tickets successfully on ebay um and what was also a lesson to be learned is that uh he inadvertently screwed up the will call so it was a lesson in the profitability of tickets, but also the headaches that goes into managing tickets. Um, but it sparked an interest, and you know he was basically buying. You know back in the day, you know a lot of fans would sell their season tickets. At face value and you know, think back to 15 years ago, there's oftentimes just a lot of baked in margin in season tickets and so you know those fans would want to sell their package but maintain their rights and so you know he was buying season tickets from fans and sometimes from teams and then just, you know, selling them on a game by game basis. our relationship and formal partnership really took off when I saw the success he was having doing this part time. And I said, You know, what's preventing you from doing more of this? And he really just said, It's a matter of uh, capital and uh, operations. And so I'd been in the business world for a couple of years. I was in outside sales for Career Builder, so um, selling online advertising. And so I know all about cold calling and prospecting and and you know servicing customers uh, I started off as a small account rep and moved up to the to the national team where I was only handling five large accounts and and traveling the country for them one of my big accounts was Cisco Foods and um Cisco Foods is in every major market they each individual Cisco Foods operates quite frankly as its own business as it should because oftentimes those individual Cisco Foods are doing you know 2 to 5 billion dollars a year of revenue and so i was traveling the country meeting with the different ceos of the local cisco foods and you know one of their biggest customers were generally the local stadiums and so i'd spend time in the evening going and checking out stadiums and so i became very passionate about the fan experience as ignacio was kind of learning about the ticket marketplace and so when we kind of put our heads together we realized that there was just a lot of a lot of opportunity in the space. Um, you know, I think that what really started to transform, not just our ticketing business, but but the ticketing business as a whole was, you know, 2007, 2008, eBay bought StubHub. Um, and that sort of simple transaction changed the, the verification and sort of authenticity of the secondary market. I think all of a sudden you had a lot of people saying to themselves that, oh i can buy on the internet it's backed by this you know multiple billion dollar fortune 100 company there's no way they're going to rip me off and so that created a ton of liquidity that kind of quite frankly happened in a way overnight and then shortly thereafter major league baseball did an integrated deal with StubHub, and that added even more liquidity to the secondary market uh, and more validity to the secondary market. So you had, from a distribution standpoint, distribution was growing, you know, at at, at an amazing clip. But then on the inventory side, teams were getting a little bit bloated with inventory. And uh, what was happening was that, you know, due to the economic uncertainty, and coupled with the fact that the price of HD televisions had come down so much, I mean, we take for granted that back in like the early 2000s, a 70 inch HD television would cost $15,000, that that price came down by 90% You know, within the decade, um, it really opened up the uh, at home experience. So a lot of fans were walking away from season ticket uh, packages and uh, the appetite for the brokers had really grown. So teams basically were backfilling canceled fan sales with broker sales and um you know at the time it seemed like a very good strategy um the teams had the revenue they needed and the secondary market was providing a uh, a lot of liquidity um so back in that era 2000 and you know i quit my job at career builder 2008 so between 2008 and 2011 one of our other sort of thought processes was uh being a retail ticket broker so we had we had the wholesale business right where we were buying inventory and selling it on the marketplaces but we really wanted to build relationships with customers um and one of the ways we did this and i think people might forget this fact is that back in the day um when you sold a ticket on ticket network Uh, which is, you know, was one of the first point of sale systems for ticket brokers, one of the first sort of like website platforms for ticket brokers. When you sold a ticket on Ticket Network, you actually got the customer's name and information and you were allowed to market to that customer. So while Ignacio was, and it was was literally just the two of us and his mom, um, uh, you know, it was just the three of us he would spend time on pricing and operations and i would spend time calling customers seeing what other tickets they might want and trying to build direct relationships with customers and and quite frankly we had some success um it it was it was a healthy part of our business um, but uh you know as as we needed to scale we started realizing that there were other opportunities to do so and one of the the biggest impacts on our business and so when i say that there's sort of like three big turning points in our business. One of the one of the first big turning points of the business was StubHub coming to us and saying, hey, look, if you use our point of sale, and if you get your volume up to this, this, and this, your seller fees will decrease dramatically. Um, that really changed our perspective on the business. So we started to change our perspective of like focusing on acquiring customers to unilaterally trying to focus on acquiring inventory and selling it almost exclusively through StubHub and selling it exclusively through Ticket Network, because those were the two marketplaces that were giving us very favorable seller rates based on volume. And so we started learning like, you know, the nuances of trying to make a margin and, and increase operational efficiencies. Um, so that really prompted a lot of growth and uh, opened us up to, you know, relationships with teams. I mean, we were very candid with the teams that we worked with. Uh, A handful of those teams are organizations that we still work with today, which is sort of amazing to think about how long some of those relationships have been going. Um, And so we had these, you know, transparent relationships with teams. We We would talk to them about games where we could add more seats or, you know, some games that we were having problems with. And it wasn't you know, to the scale it is today, I'm talking there were probably like eight teams that we probably had any sort of contact with uh, at the time. Uh, today, there's over 120 teams that we have some level of dialogue or in-person meeting with during the course of the year. Uh, so obviously the scale changed a lot. But um, the the second big sort of, you know, pillar of, of growth for our company uh, came from um, when the NBA went to their teams at one of their league uh, meetings and this is back in like february of 2012 and really put the secondary market on notice um you know teambo which is one of probably the most successful consulting operations possibly in america you know they've produced so many great leaders and and thought leaders uh and business leaders over the last couple of years you know it's just a force to be reckoned with And they had been studying the secondary market, you know, and they realized that, you know, a lot of brokers were making a good amount of money off of uh, NBA tickets. They also realized that there were brokers liquidating tickets and, and really hurting the brand. And so the league as a whole really wanted to get their arms around the secondary market. Um, and there were rumors that, you know, the league was telling teams that, you know, the way you need to deal with the secondary market is you need to identify your brokers, you need to consolidate your brokers, then you need to eliminate your brokers. Um, and obviously, they've been very successful at one and two, I think a lot of teams no longer feel the need to eliminate uh, their partners. And I really wouldn't say that the NBA teams we work with definitely don't view us as a broker, they view us as a partner. But um, back in 2012, when the league was kind of telling teams like, "Hey, you need to start kind of unwinding and you know winding down these resale relationships," a couple teams raised their hands and said, uh, "Look, hey, the break it to you, but over the last four or five years, you know the, these brokers have become like 50 percent of our season ticket base, so we can't just replace that um, that revenue overnight. You know, that's you know uh, we don't have a plan for replacing this two to three million dollars of revenue that we're getting." So that's when, uh, for us, and I think there have been other sort of iterations of consolidation. I think there's certainly other organizations, uh, that kind of can raise their hand and say, well, you know, we were involved in XYZ consolidation this year, ABC consolidation this year, but for us, it really started that year. And we, we aligned very closely with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Utah Jazz, <clears throat> um, as they were two, they were two teams that the NBA really wanted them to get rid of deeply discounted tickets on the secondary market. And, um, you know, long story short, through their their consolidation efforts, uh, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks had $2 lower bowl tickets. And by kind of having a real resale strategy, that price came up to $15. Um, The Utah Jazz had $7 lower level tickets on the secondary market. And by um, kind of simply tweaking their, their philosophy, you know the the lower level bounced back to twenty to twenty five dollars, um, and and basically pricing really stabilized. And uh, around that time of those sorts of two things happening, you know my business life really really changed uh, dr- dr- drastically, and is still very similar to what what it was back then. But you know after the Bucks and Utah Jazz sort of talked about the success they had with having an exclusive model um, or a semi-exclusive model, we were getting phone calls from teams. And so I hit the road. Um, and I would say that I spend an average of two to three nights a week, uh, in hotel rooms for about 30 weeks a year. Uh, and, and maybe this last two years, it's actually been dialed up a little bit more than that. There's actually only been one week this year that I haven't been on at least one airplane. So maybe the travel is a little bit more, uh, Uh, high volume than it was back then but teams were really curious about the concept of consolidation and you know you know one team would call another team they'd call another team and we you know slowly acquired positions with teams where we were you know one of three partners maybe it was one of six partners um and over time a lot of those teams have wanted to 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 move into some more uh more exclusive type relationships and Uh, certainly, you know, the story kind of continues on, but I know consolidation is sort of like a four-letter word in the broker community, and I think there's sort of a lot of misunderstanding about it, so kind of wanted to give you, Dave, if there was any, you know, questions or thoughts that pop up to you as you sort of hear that evolution from 2008
0: to 2013-ish. Yeah, no, and I I appreciate the in-depth way that you explained it, because to me, it sounds like As much of an evolution of a business is an evolution of improving the value you offer to your partners. And that's sort of what I've I've been interested in over the course of my career is because I think that when people talk about consolidation being a four-letter word in your term, right, which I would agree with, it's the fact that, like, most of the time when you're talking to the brokers, or not all of them, but a lot of them, they say, oh, you know, it's like – is just like screwing us over and doing this or doing that and I, I'm the first one to come out and say hey look if you just think that having a black card and being willing to spend money on your black card is valuable it isn't um, you know so I'm you know so like I hear your the evolution of the model and how you, you give value as being very interesting and I kind of want to. I'm kind of curious now, as the teams are starting to maybe even pull back and becoming exclusive with you. You know, how is the value you're offering today changing? And if you can't get into it for um, proprietary reasons, I understand. But maybe it's like a big picture thing of like, you know, what some of these um, the value you create for your partners is.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a great question. And I'd say the value that we're providing and these the other players in the space are providing has certainly changed over time. I think back then, if you think of the 2012 consolidations, I mean, there were, you know, dozens of professional sports teams that had tickets actively selling for, for dollars or even pennies on the dollar on the secondary market. And, um, so back then we were really just providing sort of a revenue stop gap while also providing some brand protection. Um, I think that you know the elasticity of demand is you know a conversation that a handful of us could get into a room and, and never come out of and, and have a very fun time discussing it. But you know the general principles I think for a sports team or you know a resale marketplace or a resale market maker is that you know the difference between a dollar and uh, ten dollars is is not that great. And, and the reason that that I say that is because um, you know. The cost of just being doing the game and going to the game is, you know, uh, that that's probably a bigger investment than ten dollars for you know the vast majority of customers. Uh, the other the other factor is that when you look at food and parking and other things, you know, when you're talking about a a, a ten to twenty five dollar ticket, the ticket is really just a small percentage of the overall budget of the event. Um, and then thirdly, in terms of discounting you know, we don't think that it's a broker or a resale partner's right to determine a team's discount strategy. You know, if a team wants to have a sale or do a, you know, flash offer or do a ballpark pass, that's their brand. They have billions of dollars invested in that brand. They, they should be doing that sort of discount offer. It shouldn't be at the will of a Ticket broker trying to recover $3 of a $15 purchase. Well, let me you know, we jump just don't think that on that you that, too, like, because
0: yeah. you you just mentioned the code word that sets me off, right, which is discounts. And, um, right, you know that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, d- discounts are bad. You know, that's all, that, that, that'll be my full stop message on this. Yeah. But in some of these flash sales, right, it to me, it lends itself to maybe not pricing well to begin with, you know, and I would hope that, like, some someone would listen to, you know, someone like you or me and help them understand how to price better at the start. Because I think what's happening with these, some of these flash sales is that they have become these tools that are like a sugar rush. And then in the long term, they, they still hurt the brand because you still have trained people to wait, which is like sort of the challenge right right now is the demand generation isn't necessarily where it needs to be because people have been trained to
1: wait for so
0: long. Um, How do we deal with that?
1: Right, so, so what I, I definitely agree that a lot of what we're seeing this year in Major League Baseball, it actually probably shouldn't be labeled a discount. It should be labeled as you know the right price um, for 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 a lot of the products that we're seeing being sold at those prices. But you know, you've got a very um, you've got a very there, it's a it's a it's a tight walk, it's a tightrope walk. Uh, you've got the season ticket holder where you really need to have some real integrity around that product. Uh, But also you've got an obligation to sell to people that might not be customers for a season ticket. And you've got an obligation to fill the stands to have a, you know, loud crowd for for your team to play in front of. And so what we're seeing now from our seat at the table where our conversations are really shifting is around product segmentation. And really helping the teams, you know, one of the reasons teams don't like pricing lower or pricing at market, and I'm not going to use the word discount, one of the reasons teams don't like pricing at at market is because they've got season ticket holders anchored at a certain price. And so we're now seeing from a handful of teams is they're not selling season tickets in every section any longer. You know, they're actually creating some pockets to do unique offers in. Um, and actually price closer to market at. So I think that that's we're kind of like on the front end of this evolution collectively. And when I say we, it's the teams, it's the leagues, it's partners such as ourselves, it's partners such as FIVO, it's partners such as Ticketmaster and StubHub. I think it's really that we're coming to the table and saying like, what should be sold by whom and when? And I think that now that teams are starting to better cultivate where they want their season ticket holders, uh, those sorts of of con- conversations are a lot more fruitful. Uh, and so to your point about, you know, setting the price right, you know, you've got kind of, you've got two, mo- you know, there's two lines of thinking. There's, we have to price it with full integrity to the season ticket holder. And then you've got the other side of like, we need to price it to fill the building or at least, you know, fill the lower bowl or at least fill 75% of the building. And those two kind of thought processes of that, you know, one side of the tightrope versus the other side of the tightrope, they clashed. But now teams with, you know, to some extent, the help of the team bows and and us being involved, we're helping them figure out kind of how to better segment the building. Um, And I think that over the next couple of years, we're going to see more and more teams have, you know, tighter boundaries around where they actually want to sit, season ticket holders, because truth be known, outside of super, super high demand situations, the top 10 rows of the upper deck are not a place someone wants to go, you know, 10 times a year for a football game or 40 times a year for a basketball game or 80 times a year for a baseball game. But the usage rates are a lot higher in the lower bowl. So just by teams starting to dive into their scan data and their usage data they're figuring out where they can actually better service uh, and then sell season ticket products, and then that gives them, you know, clearance, you know, a clear lane to do some of the other market-based pricing mechanics and uh, promotions that that they know they want to be doing.
0: Yeah, and knowing that you're controlling the inventory in certain sections better, right? Like, let's say you, I'm just not going to sell we'll use basketball as an example behind the basket in the upper deck, maybe the last 15 rows as season tickets, or maybe like the last 15 rows of the upper deck period, you know, or like in certain parts as a tool to be able to use some of these pricing mechanisms, not discounting. We don't want to use that word. Um, but you know, maybe pricing more wisely, it makes a lot of sense because the thing is, is I guess from my perspective, in too many cases, some of these pricing strategies just seem sort of willy-nilly. So I'm always like, hey, let's be a little bit more thoughtful. And I'm kind of curious about what your opinion is on this idea, too, is like some of the pricing strategies have always felt a little bit like people are trying to maybe beat the secondary market as far as pricing goes. And then they price poorly because they go, hey, I saw this crazy number listed on StubHub. And I think you and I both know very well that just because a crazy number is listed on StubHub, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Right? That doesn't right. necessarily – but that it seems to me that sometimes that thinking gets there. People don't want to right. admit it, and then it leads to a lot of unintended consequences. And knowing yeah. you have a lot more data about pricing than I do, I'm kind of curious about where the, how that falls down, how you push back against that. And sort of how we can kind of defeat that thinking because I think that's doing as much damage as anything because all of the really premium seats end up sitting empty in a lot of cases. And then it's like it's a bad visual backdrop.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I think that that raises kind of uh, – raises a great point. And, and we, we try to look at pricing from a couple lenses. The first lens is that there's no such thing as a perfect price. And and the reason that there's no such thing as a perfect price is because I think that there's sort of like three key pillars of pricing, and there's actually five, okay? But the three that everyone focuses on is quality of seat, quality of opponent, and how far away from the game we are. So uh, it's sort of demand, quality, and then time are sort of the three things that oftentimes get too much... Uh, you know, attention when trying to price a ticket product, the fourth dimension, and this is why there's no perfect price is because it's the consumer and every consumer is so different. So, you know, if you look at last summer, I had the opportunity to see Drake, Jay-Z and Beyonce, and then Taylor Swift within like a week of one another. And, uh, my tolerance to, to see Drake was just a ton higher than my tolerance to see Taylor Swift. I had demand i was absolutely going to go to taylor swift but you know i wanted to be first 30 rows and i wanted to pay around you know 400 bucks um with drake i wanted to be first five rows and i was willing to pay 800 bucks uh and then there's literally someone across the aisle from me who had the exact opposite opinions of their of their preferences that they would have paid a lot more for taylor swift and drake but they were going to go to both right so i think that like we kind of take for granted that we can't have a perfect price because the fourth pillar of pricing is the um is the individual consumer and oh, it's yeah. going to be very different
0: that's exactly right so, and that brings up the thing too that like you you're not your market right which is a theme that i bring up all the time what i'm trying what i want is going to be way different than what you want and i can't lose sight right. of that in my pricing or my marketing or my strategy decisions is that like you're different than i am
1: yep yeah. and and so then the the fifth pillar is actually who is the content rights holder? and what I mean by that is that when we're talking about uh, sports teams, the content rights owner is the team owner, and I think that's something that's oftentimes like lost on us in the sports business world is just how different the profiles are of these sports owners. Um, you've got sports team owners that are worth you know, thirty billion dollars and their team represents less than ten percent of their net worth. You've got sports team owners that are worth a billion dollars and their team represents ninety percent of their net worth. And so how they just sort of manage their businesses are just completely different. And so our general approach, you know, at Event Elect is we like to operate from the perspective of the glass is half full and that the team and the team executives are doing everything in their power to do the right thing. So if it seems like they might, from the outside looking in, that they might be making sort of a foolish decision, nine times out of 10, when you get these people to the table, they admit that they know that was the wrong thing, but ownership had some different views. And so they're trying to manage to a market, but they're also trying to manage to ownership. And so we always try to be highly respectful of what kind of pressures they're facing internally, uh, rather than kind of going in with like a a really fine tooth combed, so comb. And so like when we when when we're at the table, we're like, hey, look, let's agree that there's no way to have a perfect price, and let's just agree that the pressures on your business are different than the pressures on the team up the road's business. And that oftentimes kind of disarms people to have really open and honest conversations. And then we kind of start digging through the you kind of start digging through some of the layers of complexity of why did this happen? Why did this not happen? And I I think the, 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 the ultimate four letter word in sports ticketing. And I think you've talked about this before is hold H O L D these ticket holds that teams sometimes have to really honor really can screw up their strategies. You know, they hold season tickets too long and they miss the on sale or They hold season tickets before putting them into mini plans or mini plans are on hold, you know, for too long before single games. And so oftentimes the team's manifest just kind of gets out of whack, uh, before they have a chance to set a real price for a single game ticket. So we just try to like, look at all those things that are driving their business. You know, what's ownership's risk tolerance, you know, does the owner want a 100% full building or do they want to maximize yield? Or of course they say both. Um, and so that's really, you know, that fifth pillar. So we've got like the three basics of quality of seat, quality of opponent and time to game. That's actually a scientific equation. And I think that um, QQ or Ticketmaster's live analytics or our data science team, you know, some of the things that StubHub's working on, look, I think that we can all come up with scientific prices uh, to to come up with with like a right price. But then you look at the fourth pillar of what's right for what customer. And then you look at the fourth pillar of what does an owner want, and things get really murky. And so we just try to do our best to navigate the waters based on those conditions.
0: Yeah, and the answer, the way you laid it out too, where you broke up the pillars into two different parts is really interesting because right? I would never ever claim to be um, an expert in the first three. But I'm definitely a – maybe if I'm not the best ex- expert, I'm up there in the fourth and fifth one, which is like dealing with people. <laughs> uh, right. and, and it's like, really, I think, you know, when you point out how difficult it is to manage your owner, that is a skill unto its own um, special, special world. Cause I mean, I, and yeah. I can speak to that clearly because I worked for, um, Paul Allen, when he was the third richest man in the world, at the Experience Music Project in Seattle, and like you are, were always juggling his demands, and they wouldn't come from him; they'd come from somewhere, right? Um, and, right. And it was, <laughs> but you had, you but you had to recognize that, and you always had, you were always pushing and coming up with ideas about how to fulfill his vision, right? Which is not, it's not right or wrong; it's just not your vision, which is like, again, I think an important key for everybody to recognize is that you know your stakeholders. Are all going to have different ideas about what's right and what's wrong, and you have to weigh those right. And the, this risk management and the risk tolerance idea is really, really great because obviously Mark, you, you know, you, you used a couple of examples like Paul Allen's risk profile was going to be much different than Mark Cuban's, or you know, Mark Cuban's is going to be much different than um, Mickey Aronson in Miami, right? And I'm just using basketball yeah. because those are there. And recognizing that is going to help, like, help you, help me, help anybody help everybody make better decisions, right? Because it's, you know, that's just the way this, this works, right?
1: Because not everybody's the same. Yep. Yep. That's, that's exactly, exactly correct. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a hard, you know, kind of understanding what lane you fit in. And I think Tony on your last podcast, uh, Tony Knopf talked from ticket manager, talked about this pretty well, is that you know, some of these websites are doing a, a, a really good job of personalization. And and I know that, you know, uh, wh- whether it be what Nathan Hubbard's working on, he's got some significant investments. Um, Ticketmaster is always making investments. And I'd like to say that people never give Ticketmaster enough credit. Uh, you know, you, if you get to know them and get get a look behind the hood the things they're working on, they're really going to be well positioned to service the sports fan and the sports team for the next you know, long haul. Uh, But you look at what Nathan's doing and then also Sekinder at StubHub, she's a true technologist, you know? And so I think if you take Jared Smith's view on personalization and Nathan Hubbard's view on personalization and Sekinder's view on personalization, where the three of them are ideally taking the business in in the next couple of years is going to be really exciting. Uh, And I think we, as, you know, Sports consumers sports fans sports business executives there's just a lot going on and what that means is that it'll make it easier for the teams to serve up the $15 dollar offer to the fifteen dollar customer to to offer up the hundred dollar offer to the hundred dollar customer and so right. forth and so on but the thing that I really don't want to get away from and, I, and, and and I think that where maybe I'm unique being on the secondary you know I, it really shouldn't be secondary market. You know, on the distribution side of things, where I might be unique is, man, I continue to think these teams are doing the right thing by over indexing on salespeople. And um, I know there, I know there's some debate around. Now, that's a hot take. Practices.
0: That's going to be, I'm pulling, that's a pull quote I've given. That one's great. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> I, well, so look, here's the deal. It's like, I, I know there's a lot of. Uh, you know, there's thoughts on the cold call and the cold email and the mass email, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I get that. I understand that there's probably better and simpler ways to do certain things. Like, like that's that's not lost on me, but I do think that one of the things these teams are doing is they do create a lot of momentum and they do generate a lot of activity. And what we see from those that are generating really positive activity is that they are cutting through the clutter and uh, communicating directly with fans, Um, You know, something that we just probably take for granted is just how much digital messaging we're getting. I know we all know we get a lot, but like we think we read a message, but we actually didn't, you know, get it. But when a season ticket sales rep is able to actually pull someone aside in the concourse, get their photo with that, you get that person's photo at the championship trophy and then talk to them, those skilled sales forces are getting way better information than we're ever going to get from the Internet uh, or from, you know, like minded customer matchups. And of course, those are very important. But, uh, you know, uh, Colby from the uh, Whitecaps, you know, that was an awesome story. He told on your podcast around like we have no idea why this guy's buying these tickets, so we better call him and figure out. And a lot of these teams are doing that. Yes, they're calling people. Yes, they're mass emailing people. But the good reps are getting in front of people and are like, why are you here and what do you want? And it's not just what do you want. I can tell you this. If, if, if you look at we were with an NBA team a couple weeks ago, and they've had a lot of turnover of some of their most premium seats. And what I had to explain to them was that the people that are customers for this product I can guarantee you that the ones that have the budget and or spending capacity to buy these tickets, 75% of them would assume they're sold out. You and know? I would agree and with so that,
0: I, right? Because people always just think, oh, I can't get the ticket.
1: Right. And so someone who who has the capacity to spend $400 a ticket a game, you know, so during the course of a season, they're spending $32,000 on two tickets. The person that has that spending capacity in the NBA they're not opening – they're not, like, getting a text message from reply by and responding to it. That's a good tool for a certain customer segment. But this person, and what I told the team was, you need to look at what the colleges are doing with their high-dollar donor seats. They sent out this high-gloss mailer with all these touch points, and, you know, they looked at me like, you know, I had three heads. But I said, look, like, you got – people get less and less mail, so it's time to over-index on mail I agree like, with, I couldn't agree with you more.
0: This is the thing you have to I mean Tony and I talked about this the other day. This is on the podcast. This is exactly right. It's you have to go in a different direction. If everybody's going left, you need to go up the middle or to the right. You know, so like if everybody's right. emailing and texting and sending those stupid uh, video prospecting uh, emails, right? Do do <laughs> right. something else, right? My my uh, my wife is an antitrust attorney, and she did a blow dry party because she needed to. Um, there was probably like twenty five uh, female law partners, and she got all she got twenty of the twenty five to come to this blow dry party, right? And, they, and then one day she sent an ice cream truck to a uh, prospect's uh, office. And she got the prospect, right? She got the meeting. You know, and it's like, so you have to go and, and you know juke and go crazy. So I couldn't agree with you more.
1: yep. and and so so I think that you know when when we when we look at like these sales academies and these inside sales forces, look, you know a lot of what these teams are having to do is figure out who wants it. you know, and and I know that there's probably other ways of sort of cultivating talent and growing talent. But like these folks that get to become directors of sales or director of analytics or VPs of sales, I mean, the number of people they had to beat by just sheer creativity, but also sheer workload, you know, that's how these teams sort of like, you know, trim the, you know, kind of prune the bushes a little bit. And so I do agree. And I don't think any of the teams are obtuse to think that like calling people is like the absolute most effective, but it does do a couple things. One, uh, what we take for granted is that um, it might not drive demand, but what we've seen with the teams that we work very closely with is that it shortens the time to sale when things get good. So what we've seen with some of these really high-powered sales forces, the 76ers being one, is that by the time the team like actually became interesting, the sales flew in at a much faster clip than other teams because all these prospects actually knew who to call because they had an email in their inbox or they had a voicemail on their phone. And so they could just go to their inbox and type in 76ers and they're like, oh, yeah, this is that friendly kid who gave me a couple of tickets a couple of years ago. Let me see what's available. So they actually shortened the sales cycle by having sort of a brute force sales force. Uh, well, and let I me think step it, in and you know, ask you
0: about this, though. So you, you know, because you point out the, the good side, but the concern I have with some of this, though, is that because it become, it's just like on blast, that it. How do you avoid the burnout of the market? Because well, you know some of well, these markets so, are not
1: that big. Well, so I get that, right? So, so I hear you there. Um, you know, I, I think that if someone's going to be upset about being reached out to multiple times they're probably never really a customer anyway. You know, so I mean I I think that's that's one issue. And I think about the fact that number one, the number the, the two top cold calls or cold emails I get are for commercial real estate and for um you know, IT services. And you know, I look at it as just you know, and I probably get 30 other categories that cold call me or cold email me and you know, it all just kind of goes into like one sort of lump like sales tactic. Um, and I don't really hold it against those respective organizations. So I, 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 think there's certainly like a, a balance between burnout and also like just making sure you have your contact information handy when someone's ready to buy. Um, you know, and so, so I think that it's just sort of the right balance, but I think the good news is for, cause you know, I think you and Tony definitely were on the same side of the fence. I think the good news for people that really don't like the, the, the the heavy use of phone and and calling is that you were seeing a ton of awesome you know streamed line lead generation services um, or like sort of lead cleansing services um, you know when we look at our sort of where we fit into the pipeline we are a value added distribution partner because we believe we understand what tickets to have posted for sale and at what price and we've got the technology and science to broadcast more tickets and change prices in very real time so that's that's we're we're one part of a very uh you know well-invested food chain i think that you know when you look at ticket sales i'm really excited to see what um kager is doing craft analytics group they're making it really easy for sports teams to uh, scrub leads and better qualify leads and so so here's a great example is if a team is not using a data service uh, like a Kager, they get someone who buys four upper deck tickets on their website, and they immediately file that person into, okay, this person should be marketed to a ten game mini plan in the upper deck. That's that's the right next step for that person. Well, if you use some of the technologies that these companies provide, and Kager is the one I'm probably most familiar with, what they do is they tell you they're like, oh wait, actually this person's like really high net worth. We probably don't want to email them uh, or call them for a mini plan. They actually need to go to the premium team. So, right off the bat, that person's kind of getting a better uh, touch point from the team. And so, when the team reaches out, they're like, hey, you know, we wanted to see, you know, you're coming out to the game in a couple of weeks. You know, what are you coming out for? And you find out, well, actually, uh, I'm going as a guest in in one of my business partner's suites, but I needed four tickets for my kids, and that's why they're on the upper deck. And you're like, oh, have you been? You know, then you start the conversation. Oh, have you have you been to the game? Have you been to the same before? Uh, do you know? Oh, and the guy might say, oh, well, I just I go to my buddy's suite because I thought you guys were sold out of suites. And you're like, hell no, we're not sold out of suites. You know, not uh, even, not let, even close, talk. guys. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and, and so I think that, like, you know, it's one thing if, like, teams are just, like, calling, 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 but it's another thing if these teams are, like, using some, you know, some of these data tools that that are at the ready. Um, I think that, you know, really exciting. Salesforce bought Tableau today. I mean, that's going to change the workflow of, um, you know, a lot of these teams. And it means that Salesforce, you know, because Salesforce was due, they had launched a bunch of tools to basically replace a Marketo Uh, and replace some of the other automated marketing tools. And now that they're going to have access to Tableau, I think that the reporting is going to become a lot more sophisticated. The offerings are going to become a lot more sophisticated. Uh, And then, you know, obviously they're going to cross-sell to one another, uh, the Salesforce and Tableau sort of sales forces. But, um, you know, that's the other thing is we just have to keep in mind that some of these teams, like, they do know what they're doing from a lead generation, And, like, if they are calling a lot of people, they're calling people that that they've identified as, you know, these people, they're going to buy 10-game mini plans. And they're not really burning the partner at the law firm. They're not really harassing the CEO of some consulting company. You know, now, look, I'm not going to say everyone's that sophisticated. There are still some teams that are literally smiling and dialing out of the, you know, white and yellow pages. But, like, most of the really successful teams, you know, they're being hypersensitive around, Who's getting called from an inside sales rep and who's getting a, you know, a uh, you know, gift or a touch point from a premium sales rep? Right. And I think, too,
0: that's a good point that some of the teams are, you know, they may still still smiling dial or they still maybe their practices seem a little bit behind. But they also in a lot of cases, at least in the experience I have with some of them, is it's a reflection of their market because some of these markets that's and some of their season ticket holders or some of their ticket holders are just old school. Right? And they just right. won't respond to new technologies, right. I, I know a specific team right, where they were saying like, if they sent out emails, it, I mean the, the response rate would be like abysmal or even if they thought or the adaptation rate of um, smartphones was extremely, extremely low. So they had to maintain mailing old you know, letters and ticket stock and all of these things. And so I think sometimes too, we have to recognize that like, you got to look at the demographics of who they're serving. Because that's also yep. a key point in whether or not they're yep. adapt, able to adapt. It's not that they don't want to. I mean, because most of these guys are like, oh, we would love to change some of the things, but we just can't because our market would
1: just we'd lose them. Well, yeah, or, or or the budget. You know, they haven't gotten that to that point in the budget yet. You know, like they they <laughs> analytics and data in that organization just isn't quite to like the center of the table, and and it'll get there, right? Like. Quite frankly, a lot of the organizations that sort of have the best lead scoring and best sort of customer segmentation, they're from the most recent owners, you know. And so there's still some lingering sports properties where that person, most of their wealth is tied up in their sports franchise and they became rich because of their sports franchise. But like those people eventually, you know, cycle out. And we're going to be in the next couple of years where everybody is basically, you know, understands the value of data and understands the value of digital marketing. And so I think a lot of those kind of bad habits will will go to the wayside. Um, but the quickest ways to to make up for uh, perhaps a gap in sales strategy is an over-indexing of service. Um, you know, I think that, you know, teams, you know, look, if you look at an NFL team, you really have a handful of different profiles of people that you're servicing. Um, I'm, I I was very friendly with uh, my, you know, back in the day we we did not work with team presidents. We did not work with, you know, CROs. We worked with like a service rep and we were transparently buying from a Houston address, you know, 2000 miles away. And so we had relationships with service reps at the time. And I remember one guy telling me, he's like, look, part of my job is Monday morning, just basically putting my, my phone on speakerphone and letting a couple of these guys play Monday morning quarterback, you know, and that's just what my Monday is, is listening to these guys kind of complain or, or, you know, be celebrate whatever happened with the team. And, you know, that might be one type of customer profile. You've then got, you know, on the other end of and, and the things, one of our partner teams invited us to go to their uh, end of season sweet holder um, uh, trip. And that's the other funny thing about us is like, we get categorized as a partner level in lots of different ways. So this particular organization was like, well, we're just gonna uh, you know, treat events like, like a, a suite holder because that's about what their spend is or whatever, whatever the situation might be. And so um, we were on the suite holder trip and it was fascinating. I, I mean, I learned so much on that trip. Probably the most telling thing was that this one guy, he owned a, a, he had just gotten a suite in the NFL stadium and he had a suite in the NBA arena for a number of years. And he canceled his he got out of his NFL suite contract after one one year because he had a different server every single game, and it just drove him nuts. Because he was like, "Look, I'm spending a lot of money. I mean, NFL suites on average are you're spending about a thousand to three thousand dollars per guest. You know, he was expecting that person get to know him, know what he likes, know what his guests like, be able to really customize the service experience. And he felt that he was spending thirty minutes every game day. Training a new service person, um, uh, a a server. And, you know, the team just was like, well, this was what we came up with and this is going to be our policy. And it's like, okay, you know, you just lost the sweet customer. And so um, uh, understanding. This is
0: fascinating for you to explain because this is something that I complain about constantly, which is that my level of expectation of service is going to be very, very high because I'm probably like the guy in the suite, right? And most of the right. time, if you're on the team side, your expectation of what a premium service model looks like is going to be entirely different. You can't design it for you. you got to design it for the customer, right? And this yep. is a, a, this is like the truest thing is the day is long. It's like I would be just like that guy because going to a place over and over and over again and feeling like I have to train the staff, it just irritates me to no end.
1: Yep yep that's uh you know a hundred percent uh correct and uh you know so we just try to learn what we can from our teams Uh, i think that's you know if you look at another key evolution of the company was us trying to cross-pollinate you know best ideas or best practices uh from my travels and i'd say that you know one of the reasons i've gained so much weight over the last couple of years is because all of our teams are very gracious and they want me to eat <laughs> in their, their newest, coolest, <laughs> you know. That's exactly thing. right. People um, want to give me everything. <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's like, I, I'll be honest with you, like, there have been a handful of times where, like, hey, guys, you know this is the excuse. and like, they get sad, you know, because like, they know I've eaten everybody else's food, you know? And so I was like, look, I got to just either exercise and I got to figure something out. Cause like, I can't tell these guys, no, I'm not eating your brand new all-inclusive club food. Uh, I've been to 33 professional sports venues this year. Uh, I've been to 120 in my career uh, plus college venues and music venues and stuff. And so, you know, I, I think that just like we like learning from our teams, we actually like, hey we heard this one team say this or hey look just so you know we saw this one team they actually stopped doing an all-inclusive buffet uh and they switched it to in-seat service and it grew customer satisfaction by this this and this so like literally nothing to do with my business absolutely nothing a team going from taking their club seats from a buffet to in-seat service does not just not impact my business whatsoever We generally don't believe that those sorts of products are good for the secondary market. I think they make sense every once in a while. And we could talk about that if you'd like, but basically, you know, you would think, and that's the other thing is that like, you think that all these teams like are on some massive email thread and they just like, Hey, today we learned that our customer satisfaction, our renewal was directly correlated from dumping the buffet and going to in seat service. The the connections actually aren't there. Uh, and so a lot of times I'm actually surprisingly sharing information that, uh, a team didn't have, uh, which is certainly rewarding and kind of builds credibility and builds trust and shows that we're, we don't just care about, you know, the margin we make on the tickets we manage. We care about the holistic nature of their business, uh, and fan experience, um, you know, related to fan experience, something that, that I spend a lot of time doing is secret shopping, um. I was at this one baseball team's club level, and uh, I was like, man, this club level is just packed. Like, like where are all these people coming from? And I realized that the team was not double scanning the tickets. So for most premium spaces, you scan your ticket to get in the stadium, but then you scan your ticket again once you're at the club level, and they like give you a wristband. Well, they weren't scanning the second time. They were just giving people a wristband. So what that meant is that someone could like print like they could buy one club seat and print out, you know, so they buy one club seat and 10 bleacher seats, but they'd make, you know, 10 photocopies of that, you know, that club seat and give them to their friends. And like they were just eating for free. Um, Digital ticketing has thankfully helped solve some of those issues, but like just being able to tell the team like, hey, look, like you're not double scanning and you're like serving probably 200 more people a night than you should be. You know, that just shows that we're paying attention to their business. Uh and, and that's something that I have a great passion for and I love doing whenever I get the chance.
0: But see that sort of leads back to where we started the conversation, which is that like you are always looking for ways to continue to add value. And that's very important because to me that would seem like an obvious thing, like, hey, look, I was just here, right? And they were doing right. this. And are you, you know, have you thought through this? Because I think the thing people miss a lot of times, which I've found from doing a, the podcast and doing some of the other stuff I've done is like you said, people aren't as connected as we think they are. Right. Because, you know, right. it's, it's like they, they just assume that, you know, the VP of sales at, at the Mariners is definitely friends with the VP of sales in Miami. And that's not necessarily right. the case. Right. Because uh, right. it's usually like a, you have a small cohort and, you right. know, if you're able to pull these things together, it is very valuable.
1: Right. And, and so I think that one one mistake a lot of people make is that like they don't speak up, you know, like they notice something, but they just assume that someone else has taken notice. And so when I point out something, I try to be very respectful. Of. Hey, look, I noticed this. Maybe you're already aware. But, you know, I'm curious as to why this is the case. So, for example, a couple months ago, there was a professional sports team marketing taking deposits for a new space in their building. And so like I went to their website, I clicked the deposit link and it actually said that they were sold out of deposits. And I was like, okay, well, one of two things is happening. One, they either need to like reload the deposit so that, you know, cause it's just like a ticket, they need to make more deposits available or number two, they need to like stop marketing that they're taking deposits, you know? And so just reached out to the team and said, Hey, I noticed this, you know, Not sure what the strategy is, but, you know, I I was just a little surprised. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, like we've been advertising deposits for a week and we have not had any loaded into the system. And so you would have thought that, like, the team would have caught that. But there's a lot of times there's like a million things going on. And so if we can just say, hey, just trying to be helpful, um, it shows two things. One we, we, the most important thing is that, like, we look, we notice a lot, you know, we're going to research your business. We're going to try to get to know you better. We're going to try to learn from you. If you offer some sort of holiday mini p- plan, we're going to pretend like we're a customer and we're going to like try to buy that mini plan. Not because we're trying to arbitrage it. You know, we actually won't even check out, but like, we want to see what the experience is like and we want to see what happened. Um And so like, look, if we notice that something's broken, we'll do our best to bring it to your attention. Um, and the, the thing I'll add is, that, you know, teams have like millions of things going on. And so like even finding one mistake is very rare, but like it does happen. And, you know, uh, it just shows the teams that look, we, we care more about just us pricing and selling the tickets that we bought from you.
0: Well, I mean, I think it goes back to another important point to make, which is the fact that, look, I mean, for you to be successful in your role, the team needs to be successful, and if they're not doing things as well as they can, or if they're unaware of some of the challenges or some of the you know some of the little things that might nick them in the market, it's going to hurt your ability to be successful as well. Which is like really like right. a key point, is, which I think it gets often missed when they talk about you know someone like you with like a consolidation model or anything. Is that I'm only su- as successful as my partners are.
1: Right. Well, you know, and, and I think that you, you kind of mentioning that in the vein of consolidation brings up like a really big point that I think there's a lot of confusion about in, in the industry. And that's that I'm telling you, there are some local and I'll say ticket brokers just because, you know, they consider themselves old school ticket brokers. I mean, they know the customer, they know the product mix, they know the pricing. There's a lot of teams that have fired local brokers and they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, And so that's why when we talk about doing an exclusive deal, we always talk about like, hey, look, you know, what's your relationship like with your local guys? Because a couple at least and at least one of them probably know something that's really valuable. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that's sort of like where the rubber meets the road is that there have been a lot of guys who say that they're ticket brokers, but all they've been doing is like buying tickets online, possibly using fake aliases, possibly using fake addresses, using Amex gift cards, and they think that they're, like, entitled to keep getting to do that, you know, and that's not right. You know, there's, there's no industry that really operates that way, and that's not being a value-added, you know, part of the food chain. Um, that being said is in complete contrast to – Uh, Barry Rudin's of the world and the Jim Holtzman's of the world who owns ace tickets and you know Harris Rosner's of the world or Ken Ken Sulky who Floyd Mayweather gave a shout out to in Vegas man if I was a boxing promoter there is no way I'm not gonna have Ken Sulky involved in my business in some degree now maybe it's not if you've never had the chance
0: to to hang out with Ken as he takes you on the rounds of Vegas Anybody who knows Ken should do that. I mean, I, he did it with me one time, and I was like, going, my God, he knows everybody, and he's connected to everything, and if you got rid of Ken, it would be uh, just, uh, you would be an idiot. <laughs> I mean, there's no way to put it around. it. He knows more about Las Vegas than anybody, I think, at this point.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah, he, 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 he does, and and I think that, uh, you know, one of the um, important things to, to note is that, you know, the... A guy like Ken, and I think he's realized this, and I think Jim holtzman and I think barry i think I think all these guys who are legends in the space, and I call them legends, and I'd like to think I've got good personal relationships with some of these legends is that I think they understand that the business is no longer like them gambling on a bunch of two hundred dollar tickets that they can likely sell for four hundred. It's more about them carving out a piece of inventory that they're going to be uniquely skilled at managing and then also adding value somewhere else you know along the food chain um And so, like, those guys, like, they've been transparent with the teams. Now, maybe they weren't always transparent. Maybe it was, like, a director-level relationship, but they never hid from what they did, uh, you know. And so, those guys just have really deep, embedded knowledge of the market. And so, what I think is really powerful is when you take a subject matter expert, and most cities have have one or two, and then you layer in someone who's got a level of sophistication and, you know – technology and data science, um, you know, it then then the teams are really benefiting from the best of both worlds. You know, you've got a guy who's been in the market, and understands a premium business for a long time, and then you've got eventelect who works with 120 plus properties and has software and has we have our own software, we have our own data science team, and data science is by far the most absolute bastardized, you know, term in all of professional in all of sports business. Um, If you don't know what data science is, actually try to hire a real data scientist, not a data analyst who has called themselves a data scientist and you'll learn quickly like how powerful it is. Um, But anyway, if you take the resource of like some local expert, of a local expert, and you take the resources of a company that has a large distribution pricing platform like us, the team's gonna gain a lot. Um, And we just try to be very uh, direct with our partners about their relationships with other partners, because there are some that really know things that are going to continually add value to the team. Um, But look, you know, if you've gone about and, you know, one of our partners told us that they found a guy who was one of their smaller time partners, but he'd bought 200 season tickets across like 30 different names. That guy can't expect to be invited to the table, you know, but One thing is that by buying tickets in someone else's name and someone else's address is borderline wire fraud, you know, so like you're immediately going to get yourself thrown out from those conversations with the team. However, if you were a local guy and you said, hey, look, I've been following, you know, these games and I think that these sections can take on more seats. It reminds me of this game back in 2009. You know, that team's going to not really want to lose that knowledge base. Um, but look, there are some guys that have purposely not talked to the teams around when they think they can add group tickets because they don't want to like get the team. The team might say, oh, well, we're not going to you groups and they just change the price. Look, that happens every once in a while, but you're, you're never going off to stop that
0: from happening. That's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, that doesn't mean you act like a jerk. It just means you right, understand yeah, it, that like some people aren't going to be honest with you.
1: Right and, and and so I think that that's a very thin line to 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 understand and like there are guys that totally understand it and they still tell the team their thoughts and so when when you talk about you know one of your first questions was like you know the the pricing is sort of chasing the secondary market look I think that there are some sports executives that work for teams that are highly nervous of their owners saying we got beat by the brokers or why can they get more money for the tickets and you know, so they, they sometimes maybe go a bit with a more of a aggressive high price than than they know, but they're trying to back into a budget number or try to not look silly. And and, and that owner or that team exec, team leader might not understand the complications of pricing. And so one thing we always try to do is like, look, you know, I thankfully do have a lot of relationships with team presidents. And so I can leverage one into the other for a meeting. And I can have a heart to heart with the team president one on one where I'm really just vouching for the data guy and just letting him know, hey, he's doing a really good job. But you've got to kind of under- understand a couple things. Uh, so that's another you know, service we sometimes provide is just providing a dose of reality. And so, you know, I think some of the Twitter talk is all these guys are thinking that I'm telling teams that they need to raise their prices. It's just not true. You know, I'm actually trying to tell the team's the team owners and team presidents of which I'm very fortunate to have a handful of relationships. Hey, look, your team's doing a great thing, but I think, you know, the budget pressure here, or there, or there might be a little off. And I'm able to say that with a lot of credibility because guess what Eventalex handled. I mean, by the end of the year, we will have handled close to a billion dollars of lifetime tickets. Um, you know, we went from, you know, uh, $700,000 in revenue to 1.7 million to 4 million to 7 million, to 11 million, to 20 million, to 30 million, to 50, to 100, to 300. Right? We got from 50 million of revenue to 300 million in revenue pretty quickly, and so we do have some credibility when we're talking to the teams uh, that want to learn. And so I think that that's sort of what's kind of kind of lost in translation is like, no, EventElect's not sharing data with teams to get them to increase price. We're sharing data so that we can have awareness of what the other is doing. So we can try to maximize whatever the goals are for that particular game. Um, and guess what? There are some team presidents that have like really long-standing relationships with their local broker, and they love hearing what that guy has to say. But if that guy 20 years ago would have gone the trench coat route and never made himself available, he wouldn't have that relationship today. So I think that's what everyone in the resale slash distribution side of things need to understand is Am I willing to be transparent? And am I willing to share good ideas? Uh, am I willing to give up some margin to keep access to the tickets? Uh, and I think that those are – some of those questions have not been answered positively by those who are kind of on the outside looking into some of these deals.
0: Right, and I, and I think like some of the the, the Twitter pushback that you get, right? I, I, this, is, this is specific to you, not necessarily because I get my own form of hate mail on Twitter, um, is the fact that like you're playing a – at a much different scale and a much different game than some of the other people are too. And I think that like, as you add scale, the decisions you have to make are different. And, but the big point though, that you make, which is something that I've reiterated. I I think I've maybe reiterated every time I say anything about tickets is that it's still a relationship based business. And that like, no matter what you do, you have to own the relationship. Right. And if you don't, then you're a commodity. Right. And yep. the, the thing about a commodity is, is like you, people can replace you very easily, you know, and it, it, but the relationship with like someone like you or someone like Ken or someone like Corey, our friend Corey Gibbs. Right. You can't replace that relationship. Right. Because those people have, you know, you all of you, me, maybe even have specialized knowledge. Right. And we have a point of view and we have an understanding of the market. We have an understanding of the, you know, the pressures, both internal and external. Um, and you can't make up for that, right? That's like yep. everywhere I go, if I do a sales training for anybody, right, in sports, out of sports, I talk about the most incredible investment you can make in yourself is being a trusted advisor. And when I follow yep. the, what you're doing, that's what I see is like over at a time, you know, you have your ups and downs, right? You have your successes and failures, just like any business. But the evolution yep. of your business is to become more and more and more of a trusted advisor. And yeah. If you continue to do that, you'll be successful. And the the same message I would send to everybody is like, if you continue to invest in being a trusted advisor to the people you want to serve, you're going to find more success.
1: Yeah, I certainly appreciate that and echo that. And what I'd also like to say to some of the folks on Twitter is that there have been times they've been critical of certain pricing strategies that they thought were transparent to them. Uh, And honestly, the brokers that generally are engaging on Twitter – They're actually right a lot, you know, but what, what they, and I want to give them credit and I like them keeping me on my toes. I, you know, I I get a kick out of it. I like the engagement. I'd love to beat most of them for coffee. Some have taken me up on the offer. Um, but, uh, you know, what I'd say is that they're generally right from like the, if we're talking about the five pillars of pricing, they're right from the three pillars and we absolutely made the wrong analytical decision with some pricing strategy but there's two things that i'd like for just people to understand the pressures of our position sometimes is that we have received direct notification from basketball operations that basketball operations said we have zero tolerance for this building not being entirely full and look our position represents you know maybe five to fifteen percent of the inventory in that building if basketball ops makes a request like that, I don't care if we're we're, we're costing ourselves you know twenty dollars a ticket or a hundred dollars a ticket. We're gonna follow what basketball ops wants, right? Like we have that obligation. Absolutely. The other, you know, and so some there. Most people in this space have never gotten that email. Right. right? Sometimes so like, like making
0: the it, most money is not the right decision, and sometimes these these guys they don't understand that because it's a yeah, commodity look, thing decision they're making.
1: Exactly, and 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 so right. So, and we're looking at it from sort of like an ecosystem perspective. The other part of the ecosystem that we have to be hypersensitive to is that we've had to clear out of positions uh, because of the fan reseller. And uh, you know, when 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 people talk about oh, you know, the 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 big picture, I'll take a step back. You know, big picture, I get questions a lot. Like other teams, like executives will call me and they'll say, "Hey, look." so-and-so just jumped ahead on the season ticket sales leaderboard within the league. Is that all broker sales? What do you think? And I'll say, look, it's not broker sales in the traditional broker sense. You know, most of these teams outside of the guys that really go to very nefarious levels to get tickets, it's generally not brokers getting through the cracks. Like the teams have pretty good protocol for that outside of a a handle, you know, a handful of rogue individuals. But what I say is I'd say that probably probably 90% 90% of those sales are people that have some sort of an eye towards resale. <laughs> you know, like, it might be a 24-year-old kid who plans on selling 75% of his games. It might be a family of four that's planning on selling at least 25% of their games. You know, so I think that, like, when when that happens is you've got to be cognizant of, as a team executive, what level of resale are you happy with? Um, and some teams are like, hey, look – if you're going to sell half your tickets, you probably shouldn't because you should probably just buy a half season plan. You know, if you're going to sell 75% of your tickets, you probably shouldn't. You should probably just buy a quarter season plan, right? So like some teams are trying to communicate to the fans, but a lot of this volume that we see out there is is fan. And um, fan resale is like, generally, depending on the market, it's one of the top two indicators of renewal success. So look, there's a lot of fans, most fans sell their tickets late. You know, that's one of the reasons they like being a seasoned ticket holder is they like uh, the flexibility of, um, you know, getting to choose when they go and they'll throw up their tickets very late in the sales cycle. Look, we want that fan to have a healthy experience with the resale market. So we've maybe gone clear uh, of our inventory to give that fan a clearer lane to sell in, even if it's cost us 20 to $50 a ticket. You know we've got to be cognizant of that. So, um, you know, look, we have no one's perfect in ticketing, and one of the reasons no one's perfect in ticketing is it goes back to the principle that there's not a perfect price. Right. We just try to do what we can, given some of the obligations we have to the team's operations or the team's fan base. And um, it's always a a, a delicate science, and we're constantly trying to be better. We constantly make mistakes, but we try to learn from them. And the best way to learn from our mistakes is, you know, at the end of a home stretch or at the end of a season, like, let's huddle up over a a cup of coffee and talk to our team and look at the data together. And what'd you learn? What'd you learn? And and, and then we can get better uh, knowing that we're not chasing perfection. We're just sort of chasing the next level of fan engagement or fan satisfaction. Right,
0: and I, and I think the way you described it is really great because I th- I think it's, there's always a pressure, mainly because of the culture, that everybody has to have the right answer, right, or the perfect answer, and that just like you said, it doesn't exist. And the more that I think we're able to have like serious conversations about what do we learn, what worked, what didn't work, um, the better everything's going to go. Because I, you know, if there's any frustrations on my behalf, it's when those conversations aren't being ha- had, and you end up seeing some, you know, practices that don't evolve or don't change or don't improve over time. And so I think like right. knowing that guys like you are having those conversations and they're encouraging them, you know, I'm encouraging them. There's a lot of guys who are encouraging those kind of conversations. Um, I think that's like a sign that things are going to continue to grow and continue to improve and. You know, yeah. hopefully we're gonna be able to, to tackle some of the big issues right and drive more demand um, make more money <laughs> you know that's my that's yeah. my, my favorite part of it make more money um, but you know yeah. no, really create communities because I think that like all of that is really what is beautiful about sports business and ticket sales and everything is that you can make money right you can build a community um, and you can do really cool stuff and I think that's like you know that should never be lost on people.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's at the end of the day, I, I think one of the ways we've been able to retain and attract some really good talent from the employee standpoint is because, like, look, we're dealing sort of with widgets, and we're dealing with, you know, maybe it's pallets of paper or barrels of oil, right? Like, we're sort of in a commodities market, but this commodity is really easy to relate to. Like, we know why people are really excited about the Bruins' upcoming game, and we know why people are – you know, really excited about the Warriors game. Yes, the Warriors might come back and win, but it's the last game ever at Oracle. You know, mm-hmm. barring it happen. You know, so like we get to like we under like we see the direct correlation between a lot of things, that I think people on our staff like to stay engaged. And you know, in terms of employee engagement, um, you know, again, a bit of a plug for for, for Tony's podcast. His discussion around culture is fascinating, um, and his, his you know some of the things he talks about his company are, are fascinating and and really worth the listen. You know, what I can say about our culture is that, um, you know, we've been very fortunate. We've been on the Houston business journal, best place to work a lot the last couple of years. And, uh, it's competitive for a company our size. And, and, and we're glad we've won it. And, you know, we can rattle off the, the, the perks we've, we've given, uh, our, our team members. But I think what's most important is that everyone at events like knows that we're in the business of servicing billion dollar brands. You know, these brands, in addition to being worth lots of money, they have a lot of emotional value to the people who attend them. And so we're all aligned in that mission that, like, we have an obligation, these brands to do what's right. And that, quite frankly, has driven a lot of the investments in software. You know, we want to have the best mobile ticket transfer experience in the space. We don't want someone to buy a ticket and be waiting a day to get their ticket. You know, So we've invested very heavily in making sure that everything's as real-time and as fluid as possible. We like to make sure that the right mix of inventory is posted for sale. Um, and it's not just us you know, putting our finger in the air saying, oh, I wonder how many tickets we need posted in Section 143 today. We're actually spending money putting science behind it. Uh, because we wanna make sure these buildings are merchandised the right way. We wanna make sure they're priced appropriately uh, as as best we can considering the limitations of pricing. You know, and so I think that that's the thing that we never take for granted is that we might be fulfilling a ticket order for someone that that's like the highlight of their year. Um, And so we just sort of have that culture of, you know, uh, responsibility, but also kind of, you know, excitement around that sort of thing um and that's certainly always a privilege and 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 i'm a venue junkie Uh, i love going to venues it's probably why i do what i do It always amazes me The it's sort of silly but like the flow of traffic in the concourse it's amazing how some are in some stadiums it's clockwise and some are counterclockwise you know and i'm trying to figure out if it's because the bathrooms on the inner wall or the bathrooms on the outer wall you know just silly stuff like that you know keeps me uh really engaged and always trying to learn more and we're all very fortunate to be in that space that you know, our main place of business where our dollars get transacted are these stadiums that are unparalleled and fun places to be and exciting places to be and and something that we we don't ever want to lose sight of
0: no that's exactly right and and as much as i hate crowds i love to go to a game or a concert or an event
1: um, but I think all right. So, question for you. That, yeah. That, 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 all right. that brings a great point. All right. So, if you hate crowds and whatnot, uh-huh. my guess is that like the last row, the <laughs> closest to the exit, might be your preferred seat. So I had the
0: perfect ticket one time. I was at Madison Square Garden. Oh, I've had several. uh, You would not imagine that I haven't had several perfect tickets. But the best ticket I ever had, right, was I went to see Pearl Jam. I took one of my best friends who'd never seen Pearl Jam before, and I was like, I'll take you. Um, And we went to Madison Square Garden in May of 2016, and we had the first two seats right on the aisle right behind the pit. And it was right next to the the, – the exit <laughs> and it was right next to the under you know how when they renovated the garden now there's like a bar underneath the stands and so it was right next to the bar right next to the bathroom right next to the exit that was the perfect seat for me <laughs> and i was right on the yep, aisle yep. That, that to me was the best yep. yes
1: yeah it, it, you know exactly and so i think that you know uh a team when you went to buy that ticket as a season ticket that ticket might be in some sort of hold pattern you know or, or a hold code and but if you had a rep that reached out to you, you, know, you could explain what you're looking for. And they're like, well, actually, that's in a hold pattern because we're working on a sponsorship deal. And those might be the tickets that go in the sponsorship deal. Let me ask the sponsorship guys if I can flip-flop something. And lo and behold, they can make it happen. So I think that, that's, uh, that your specific need highlights the power of, of relationships between the fan and the team uh, and how some need to be analog, like that example, and some need to be digital. Um, and we're just both, we're, everyone's collectively trying to get better. That's right.
0: That's right. And I think that's probably everybody trying to get better is probably a good place to leave this because I got to leave some, some, some room for, for you to come back at some point. I hope.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I I appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate what you're doing for the space. And, uh, you know, it'd be funny. Maybe we try to get a couple, uh, podcast alums at one of the, uh, Many sports business conferences, and maybe we do like a like a round table or something that oh, could be yeah. a, a fun.
0: No, that'll be great. Right. But where do I point people? Where should where where should they find you? Where do you want them to communicate you know, I, with you? <laughs> so, so, so maybe what I, maybe the answer is no.
1: <laughs> no. No, 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 no. no. The, the, it's always fun. So P Ryan Texas is uh, the Twitter handle at P Ryan Texas, uh, and then I have a link to my LinkedIn in my profile. Uh, you know. Sometimes, I don't know, I like LinkedIn. It, it makes it easy sometimes for me to index uh, people. So feel free to find me on Twitter uh, and then connect on LinkedIn. Um, always open to a healthy uh, ticketing ticketing debate.
0: Once again, I want to thank my guest, Patrick Ryan from EventElect, for taking so much time to talk to us today. Um, this was great, I thought. Um, if you like what I'm doing, find out more by visiting my website. It's www.davewakeman.com. If I have not mentioned it a hundred times yet, there's going to be an announcement about a special, special, special Dave Wakeman event, which is going to be taking place in Australia in November. But I can't announce it all yet because I don't have all the details. But it is coming. I will be in Australia. And there's going to be a whole bunch of events that are coming up. So you want to check my website. It's www.davewakeman.com. If you like the podcast podcast, um, if you dig the guest, if you want to suggest a guest, if you want to just send me your comments, your thoughts, your ideas, you can email me. It's Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Pretty simple. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. That's at David Wakeman. Um, and if you know the at Dave Wakeman, I'd love it if you'd give me that Twitter handle. Really, really, really do want that. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like the podcast, if you found this one or the one with Tony Knopp or any of these other guys, and girls that I have had the opportunity to speak with for the podcast, you found them useful, you thought there was something that somebody could learn from, please share it. Um, That would help a lot. And if you're so inclined, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and or maybe even both, leave a review. The podcast is expanding to all digital platforms and all podcast platforms as fast as I can. It's on iTunes. It's on Stitcher. It's on SoundCloud. It's um, I streamed it in my car the other day. It's great. Um, please subscribe. Please leave a review. These things help people discover the podcast and it helps make sure that I can give you more of these conversations that are helping you understand how to drive revenue, how to market and sell tickets, and live experiences better. And I really appreciate it. Finally, I want to thank my friends at Booking Protect for being fantastic partners, uh, just great people, um, and they offer one of the greatest products in the world, right? Booking Protect is the global leader in refund protection, and that's not just me, that's everybody says that, right? It is the most comprehensive refund protection product anywhere in the world, award-winning customer service, and a whole lot more. To find out how you can partner with Booking Protect to deliver World-class customer service to your customers. Give your customers peace of mind for their purchases, especially as on-sale dates happen more and more and more, earlier and earlier and earlier. Visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. And don't forget our webinar, 10 Ways to Sell More Tickets, in the second half of 2019 on Monday, June 24th, 2019 at 11 a.m. You can sign up early because you're a Business of Fun podcast listener by sending me an email with the subject line Business of Fun Webinar to my email address. It's dave at davewakeman.com And until I see you again, thank you for listening and take it easy. I'll see you soon.